Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Pulse of St. Louis. Welcome to the Pulse of St. Louis. I'm Shirley Washington. You know, it's been six months since Wesley Bell was sworn in as St. Louis County Prosecutor. Since that time, Bell, the first African-American to secure the seat, has implemented new policies and he has come under harsh scrutiny for some of his decisions. Joining me now, St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell. Thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure. So tell me, what have the last six months been like for you? You know, um, I'll say they've been busy. Um, I enjoy what I'm doing. Um, it, it's an honor to wake up every day knowing that you can help people and, and serve the citizens and residents of St. Louis County. So, um, you know, it, there's always, it's always a roller coaster. There's always tough decisions to be made, but, um, but I'm, I'm excited for the opportunity and, and, and truly am honored to serve. Any surprises? Oh, always. There's always surprises. Um, you know, we see the, the worst of the worst and the best of the best. And, and so that's a part of the job. And, and so um, just take it one day at a time, left foot, right foot. And, and just this week, there were new developments mm -hmm. in the case involving Angie Hausman. Mm -hmm. Earl Cox, the man who was accused of kidnapping and killing her, was returned to the St. Louis area, facing new charges involving another child. Are there more charges pending? So this is an ongoing uh, investigation. And, and first, I want to make sure that I um, give, a, give, give uh, or commend the work of local law enforcement, St. Anne, Police Department, who um, just never gave up, uh, as well as um, Tim Lomar in St. Charles County. This has been a collaborative effort with our office, and um, and so as because it's an ongoing investigation, if we uncover uh, more evidence um, that um, supports the issuing of more issuance of more charges, then that's what we'll do. A Ladue police officer recently shot and injured mm -hmm. a shoplifting suspect. Now, during your campaign when you were running, you said if there were officer-involved shootings, you would bring in an independent prosecutor. Mm -hmm. Was that done in this case? So what I said was is that I believe that there should be an independent investigation, a special prosecutor. And I'll give you a quick analogy. Uh, when I came out of law school, I worked at the public defenders for two years, and I worked at the special public defenders. It was still a part of the public defender's office, but it was a walled-off unit that dealt with conflict cases. And that's what we are um, setting up in our office as we've just posted our conviction incident and review unit. And it will be a walled off office that will not um, have a normal caseload like the rest of the office. They will have a, a dedicated, um, there they will be a dedicated unit um, with, with specific um, um, types of cases that they will be working in. And so, and in addition to that, we've also set up our external review committee, which is a um, group of ex-prosecutors, judges, even defense attorneys, who will also look at and review these cases um, so that we are making sure that um, we, are, we have that independent 
uh, perspective, if you will. So you, you came under fire when you terminated some prosecutors in the office early on. There were some who said, oh my goodness, why is he doing that? Including a veteran prosecutor who was involved in the Michael Brown case. So explain why you made the decisions that you made. Well, I would say you look at any transition. Uh, Mr. Page and the county executive, who I consider a friend, um, prior administrations, my predecessor, um, there's always going to be change in, in a transition. And quite frankly, I don't know how to implement change without change. And so uh, by comparison, our, our, the, the, our transition had a lot less turnover than you've seen in other, other office, offices. There were three individuals who um, I think it, it was in all of our interest to go in separate directions. Um, but since then, uh, we may have lost uh, one or two people um, who have gone on to um, better opportunities um, in, in their situations. And so that's a part of it. And, but, but, the, but, but there's been very low turnover. And, and, and I'm really excited about the, the, the people that we, the men and women that we have in the office and the, and the job that they're doing, getting behind um, what, you know, the, the reforms and, and, and changes that we're implementing, so. And, and talking about the changes that you're implementing, just this week, mm -hmm. you announced there would be a unit that will look at specific cases. Tell us a little bit about that. These are cases where people may have been wrongly convicted. Um, you know, first and foremost, public safety is, goes in lockstep with public trust, if you will. And we know that since 1989, there have been 2,500 uh, wrongful convictions that have been overturned, 50 in the state of Missouri. If we're going to prosecute people and, and know that we're prosecuting the right people, we have to have safeguards in place to make sure that the wrong people aren't incarcerated, that innocent people aren't incarcerated. And so this is a unit that um, I think over 30 prosecutor, uh, prosecuting offices across the country have, have implemented already. So we didn't create this, we're, we didn't create this, this movement, if you will, we're joining this movement of, of making sure that there is, a, uh, that the integrity of our investigations is uh, beyond reproach. And, and so that's important for us. And I think that, um, and, and that's a trend that we see going across the country. Let's talk about marijuana. Mm -hmm. There were changes to the policy there as well. Tell us what the changes are and why they were made. Well, I think that um, first our policy is that low level amounts of marijuana, and we're not talking about anything that involves violence or aggravating circumstances. That's different. We will prosecute those. But just simple possessions of marijuana, small amounts of marijuana, um, we think that our resources are better allocated for the serious and violent crimes. I think people don't understand the man and woman hours that go into even the prosecution of a small amount of marijuana. And um, when, I, when, when I think about my family's safety, um, I'm, I don't sit up at night worrying about the person with a small amount of marijuana. I, I'm worried about the, the person that can do harm to my family. And we want to reallocate more of our resources to the serious and violent crimes um, and working with law enforcement to do that. And so, um, and, and, and I'll add, this is something that most Americans actually agree with. Um, we shouldn't be spending our resources prosecuting uh, or, or prosecuting people who don't need, need to see the inside of a jail. If they need help, let's give them help. And that's one of the things that we're focused on. Okay, you're also focusing on people who don't pay their fares on the Metrolink though, right? No, well. No, yes. Well, what we're doing is, is that 
public safety, everything that we do ties into public safety. And um, I'm not going to make an announcement to those who would want to commit crimes on, on the uh, Metrolink that we're not going to enforce any of our uh, ordinances on, on, uh, on the Metrolink. I think you're just, you're just saying, hey, you're just introducing lawlessness. And so we are, um, uh, we are going to support um, the writing of those tickets. However, mm -hmm. um, what we're doing is we're looking at if these are about people's ability to pay, we're not, we're, we're just not going to prosecute them. We're going to, we'll, we'll, we can dismiss them after the fact is which, and, th and, that's, and that's what we've been doing. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think it's important that uh, people under, people feel safe when they're on the Metrolink, that they can, you know, many people need the Metrolink to get to work back and forth to work to take care of their children. And we, and we do need a presence from law enforcement there, but we have discretion. And when we see tickets that are just about a person's ability to pay, then we can dismiss them. But I think it's important that people know that law enforcement is there and that they're safe. You know, you've made numerous policy changes mm -hmm. since you've taken office, including the payment of child support. Mm -hmm. Now explain that one because people were saying, well, wait a minute, does that mean People who are obligated to pay child support don't have to pay child support now, and obviously that's not the case. But exactly. so explain, so explain and, the and, policy. And, and I appreciate you asking the question because it is nuanced and people don't understand. So first and foremost, we are supporting and representing custodial parents who need who need their child support. We are doing that. We're going to continue to do that. Um, what St. Louis County has been doing, which is an outlier from the rest of the state and most of the country, has been prosecuting these cases as felony convictions, our felony, our felony, felonious crimes, if you will. And what most of the state is doing, just about all the estate, the entire state and most of the country is doing, is looking at these cases as civil contempt cases. And I want to compare and contrast. Um, for the worst of the worst offenders, um, both roads can lead to incarceration. If someone has the money and they just don't want to take care of their responsibilities, if you file, file a crime, if you file it as a felony, they can end up in jail. In civil contempt, if a person has the money but they just don't want to take care of their kids, judges still have the option of incarcerating that person. But if we accept the premise that incarceration is supposed to, is to, supposed to right a wrong and, and flip the light switch so people know that, hey, you got to take care of your responsibilities and hopefully they'll come out wanting to do that. Now the person with the felony conviction now is hindered from doing that because now they can't get a job. It's hard to get a job. It's hard to get housing. It's hard to get back in school. So the very thing we want them to do, we are inhibiting them from doing it. Now on the civil contempt side, if that worst of the worst offender goes to jail, when they come out, they don't have those same handcuffs on them, um, if, if you will. Most job applications ask you, have you ever been convicted of a felony or arrested for a felony? It doesn't say, is there a civil, a civil contempt order? So what we're doing is we're trying to keep families together and give people the tools in the toolbox that they need to be able to take care of their families. And, and, and one thing that I'll say is the one place that we know an individual cannot take care of their family is, is prison. And so that's our sea change. But I will say this, we are still supporting those. We are representing them in the civil contempt process. And just to give you some numbers, because I'm a data person, that the, the average number of felony child support cases prosecuted in each county per year is 12. That's it. St. Louis County was over 500. So we're the outlier. 
and now we're getting in line with the rest of the of the county and keeping families together and keep keeping people at their jobs. The North County Police Cooperative lost mm -hmm. a police officer this week. Tragedy. Tragedy. Do you work closely with police chiefs and law enforcement to talk about how to best protect our law enforcement officials? Absolutely. So we work very closely uh, with law enforcement. Um, you know, I had the honor of being part of the team that created the North County Policing Cooperative, working with Mayor McGee, working with, at that time, Chief Tim Swope and Captain Clay Farmer and many others, the mayor of Wellston. And so, um, you know, I have the honor of calling a lot of the men and women on that department friends that I know personally. Um, and so we've created, in, in addition, and before I get to that, I'm getting ahead of myself, what we did after the primary election is we went on our listening tour and met with just about every chief in St. Louis County. And if we, and if we didn't, we're still working on it. But I think we met, met with just about all of them. And we wanted to talk about how we could work together because this is a partnership. And, and as a result of those conversations, um, we've made reforms to our warrant office, which was the number one um, issue that many of our uh, chief and brothers and sisters in law enforcement had, and we've been making those changes. Um, in addition to that, we've also created a, a law enforcement advisory committee. Um, uh, chief Tim, uh, former Chief Tim Swope, who is now our director of operations, chairs that, and we have several chiefs around uh, the area in St. Louis County who are a part of that, and that's where we have an opportunity to talk about our policies, to to not only inform but also listen. Um, to what law enforcement needs, and, and I'm really excited about um, the, the individuals that we have in that, uh, in the departments represented in that advisory committee because we have to work together. Uh, we have to, we were all on the same team, and that's all about public safety. And I appreciate you so much for being here. Oh, Thank you pleasure. so much. All right. When we come back, are you thinking about running for an elected office? Well, got a training program to tell you about that can help you accomplish your goals. Stay with us. Back in a moment. To hear more, listen to the podcast. Just search for The Pulse of St. Louis. And welcome back to The Pulse of St. Louis. You know, a local civic education and engagement nonprofit called Muslims for a Better America is launching what's believed to be Missouri's first campaign training program designed to help candidates fulfill their dreams of running for office. Joining me now, Saad Amir. He is executive director of Muslims for a Better America. Thank you so much for being here. I'm excited about this because you said you believe this is the first training program of its kind of its in kind. Missouri. Yeah, exactly. Um, it so tell me, how did it come about? So um, we always had a metric for ourselves at Muslims for a Better America to kind of increase civic engagement. And it's kind of like a nebulous topic. So uh, one of the metrics that we used to kind of gauge our success was how many more Muslim names we were seeing on the ballot. So originally, our strategy wasn't really coordinated. We just begged people we thought we were going to be good to run for office. Uh, but what we quickly came to realize was taking a community that is just starting to get a little bit more civically in involved and expecting them to just pick up and run, and run for office wasn't exactly the best way to do it. So we came up with this idea for the Campaign Academy, and originally it was supposed to be just for the Muslim community, at least we thought it was. Uh, but when we started doing the research and we started looking at competing programs to kind of model ourselves after, uh, we realized that no one else in the state was offering what we were trying to offer. And once we came to that realization, we decided that we couldn't just leave this for the Muslim community, we had to offer this for everybody. So the Academy, we're proud to say, is completely nonpartisan. It's open up to any Missourian that really just wants to make their community a better place to live. So. And what are you offering? 
So it's six weekends, 10 classes, and each weekend covers a different topic that's integral to uh, running a successful campaign. So we start off with easy stuff with orientation, but we also talk about things like what district would you want to run for, but also we talk about what sacrifices you'll have to make as you're running for office. And it's not just open to candidates, too. It's open for campaign staff, people that want to run campaigns or work as staff or volunteers, just want to know how the process works a little bit better. But it's important to talk about what things you'll be giving up if you want to run a successful campaign. Then we move into field strategy. We talk about uh, not only canvassing tactics and how to use your database to figure out what your roadmap is going to be, uh, but also about uh, you know, what your script should be, how you should go about talking about your message and things like that. Uh, we spend some time on communication, fundraising, not only how to make money, but how to uh, do budget and compliance with the Mo Ethics Commission. Um, and then we also kind of give them access to our uh, voter registration database. Uh, so one of the things that we were tasked with doing when we first started was coming up with a uh, database that had all of the Muslims that lived in the greater St. Louis area, um, how many of them were registered to vote. Um, so we'll give them access to our database. We are uh, muddying up the numbers and the data, so that way it's not real information. And we'll create a fake district, uh, so that way they can take the tools that they're learning from us and apply it to an actual database and see how it can actually work. And one of the other things that kind of separates this program from any other program here is, because they have that access to that database, uh, we'll be dividing the, uh, the students up into groups, and they'll actually have to comp uh, complete a uh, capstone project. And that capstone project will be a campaign plan for the fake district that we came up with. And the idea here is that when the campaign ends, they have a solid plan, an outline for a campaign plan for whatever district they want to run in. Um, and all they need to do is put in the specifics of that specific district. So you said that you were giving like fake information. So if yeah. it's fake information, they're really not having access to your database. Then, exactly, exactly. Not the actual voters or any of the personal information or anything like that. The idea is to show them the concepts and the fundamentals so they can use it when they get access to their own database. Okay, so are you endorsing any candidates? So we are a 501c3. We will not endorse. And that's kind of actually how it started. Uh, when we convinced different Muslim candidates to run for office, once they filed for office, we were no longer legally allowed to support them. So they didn't have access to our database, didn't have access to our, uh, our donor base, didn't have access to our endorsements. Um, and that was all so we could remain with our tax-exempt status. So we had to find a way to give them the tools that they needed to run for office, but still stay on the right side of the law. So we don't endorse, and we won't be endorsing any of these candidates after they run, but they will have that, you know, they've completed six weeks of an intensive course and that they've learned everything they needed to learn to not only run a successful campaign, but run a successful campaign in St. Louis, in Missouri. So give me an example of how this training program is different from the Democrats or the Republican training sure. programs, because right now it's sounding the same, yeah, exactly. very similar. So tell yeah. me how it's really different. Exactly. And actually, we are endorsed by the Missouri Democratic Party. And one of the things about the Democrats, their state uh, party trainings, is they are offered for free, uh, but they're offered every six months. Um, and it, it's about 250 people in one conference room for one weekend, and they're intermittent every six months. So it's not really effective. Uh, from the information that I found for the uh, Missouri GOP, their state training come from Washington consultants who don't really know the scene that well, uh, but they're just giving them fundamentals and basic trips and, uh, tips and tricks. But usually it's about four classes for around $1,000. So we're offering 10 classes, uh, local-based, taught by local political experts in that field, um, bipartisan experts, whether it's elected officials or political consultants. Um, and we're offering $25 a class, so $250 for the entirety of the program. Um, so it kind of fits right in between, but it also gives them a financial stake to actually see the entire academy through. So those are the two state parties. Now, there are other organizations that sponsor trainings as well. However, they have to raise the funds to bring in outside consultants to come into the state to do that training. 
We wanted to focus on A, it being local based, and B, being nonpartisan. So it could be anybody that wanted to join, whether you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, doesn't matter. As long as you're someone who wants to make this region a better place, you're welcome to apply for the Academy. So, so what's the goal? What's the mission? So there's a couple of, of missions. Uh, first and foremost, our main mission as Muslims for a Better America is to create a more civically engaged community. So we think by offering this type of training to grassroots activists, community organizers, or people who just want to hone their skills and campaigns, it could actually make them a lot more successful when they're running these types of campaigns. Uh, and two, the biggest thing for us was to create a Muslim presence where there isn't a Muslim presence already. Um, I read an interesting article yesterday from the in, uh, Institute of Social Policy and Understanding where it said that 50% of Americans don't know a Muslim in real life. They also found other uh, research that showed that if you know a Muslim or you have knowledge about Islam, then you're less likely to be Islamophobic. So those are the, the research points, but the onus isn't on the non-Muslim community to make those you know, relationships. It's actually on the Muslim American community to do those type of relationships. And this is our effort to kind of go into a space where we haven't really been involved, establish a presence, and normalize the presence of Muslims so that they can become more familiar with the community and that they have a little, once you have that little bit of familiarity, then it's kind of harder to have negative perceptions about the community. And what else besides this training program is your organization doing to sure. engage people in the community? Glad you asked. Um, so we uh, do a lot of educational seminars. Um, some of the pictures that you've, uh, you guys have been seeing on the camera include some debates and forums that we've held for different candidates that are running for office. Again, we don't endorse, but what we do is we invite all of the candidates running in a particular district, like the Parkway School Board, which we did in 2018 and 2019. Uh, where we bring in candidates and uh, different elected officials into our Islamic centers so they can learn more about the community, but the community can learn more about them. Um, so the idea is to kind of combine the places where the Muslims are, where all the civic activity is going on. Um, so that's kind of, uh, that's one, one aspect that we do. The other aspect is we have a, a comprehensive voter registration uh, program uh, where we're trying to increase the number of Muslims who are registered to vote. So uh, what we did was we, uh, for the past couple of years, the Muslim community in terms of voter registration, they would just send, uh, set up voter registration tables at the mosques on Fridays when there's the, uh, the weekly prayer times. Uh, and what we found was, at least when I did it for about two years, I only got like five or six people that ended up signing up to vote. And the reason is because most of the people that are coming for Friday prayer services, it's right in the smack dab middle of the afternoon. So most of the people that are coming there are there on their lunch break to read, pray, to pray, to listen to the sermon, and then head out, go back, go back to work. So there's not a lot of time or really interest to learn about why it's important to vote or why, or even to fill out the registration card. So we kind of looked at it as if they're not going to come to us, then we need to come to them. So we ended up uh, purchasing the information, uh, a consumer file of uh, St. Louis Muslims that live in the Tri-County area who are all eligible to vote but are not yet registered. So now we have their information and we actually set up uh, programs within the district that they live in so they can come and get registered to vote. So we debuted the program in May. Uh, we've registered 40 new Muslim voters already. Uh, it kind of took a little bit slow of a turn uh, as soon as Ramadan hit, uh, where I thought we were going to have a lot more activity. A lot of people said, I'm not talking to people on the phone for three hours while I can't drink water. So yeah. it kind of slowed down. But we're picking it back up again. We have a great volunteer base, a great uh, group of board of directors that really help out with everything as well. So. Uh, those are the two main things, is, is voter registration and voter education and engagement. All right, got to take a break. Stay sure. with us back in a moment. Welcome back. We're talking about a new 
campaign training program. So when can people actually apply and how can they apply to participate in the program, Saad? Yeah, um, so the program, the application period opens up this Saturday at 9 a.m. Um, and everybody can find the application and more information about the program at our website at mbamissouri.com slash academy. There you can find information about what's going to be covered, what we're offering, logistics, but also the cost of the program and also access to the application. Um, so that opens up Saturday at 9 a.m. We'd love for everybody to apply as much as possible. Uh, we're looking to try to uh, expose this type of program to as many people as possible. And then where are the classes offered? So right now we are planning on having them offered at different mosques. And the idea here is to promote the mosque as a place where you can have civic discussion. Um, and also mosques are free, so that's also <laughs> I understand. <laughs> There's a huge Muslim population in the St. Louis area. Mm -hmm. Let's talk numbers. How large is the population? Uh, it's, there's no set number. From our research, we believe there's about 60 to 65,000 Muslims that live within the greater St. Louis area. Um, and we believe that uh, we can break down the numbers even further. There's four major sub-ethnic subgroups that uh, kind of make up the community. There's uh, about 30,000 Bosnians that live here. After the 90s, when the Bosnian genocide happened, they resettled, uh, a lot of them resettled a lot here. There's about 15,000 South Asians, 7,000 Arabs, and the rest are African-Americans. So there's a lot. There are, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being here to share information about the new program. Thanks so much for having it. me, appreciate it. All right, and thank you for joining us for the Pulse of St. Louis. If you missed any part of the show, download the Pulse of St. Louis podcast in the iTunes or Google Play stores. And remember, for News 24-7, download the free Fox 2 and News 11 apps. I'll see you next time.